thank our ladies for that special selection, Amen. reminding us in our Black History celebration, it, you, you can't help but to see the parallel that believers who were slaves thought of their life and the life to come, and to recognize that the hardships that they faced in life are like the hardships we all face in life, and we look forward to our rescue stealing away from this body into eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ and recognizing that trumpet sound is a call of God himself that uh, we hear when believers hear it it's a joyful sound that calls us calls us out of this battle to celebration in heaven I want to uh, remind you again um, there are masks available. If you'd like to use one, we have some available. If you didn't bring your own, you'd like to use that. If you don't want to use a mask, you're free not to wear it if you feel, if you feel so inclined. And so um, ushers have, a, have these available. Also want to say, where is he? Jamar, something special about this day? Super Bowl, yeah, right. Happy birthday to Jamar today. <laughs> Jamar always trying to be in the shadows, you know, not, not be recognized, but we, we found that shadow today. We know it's his birthday. Dad has a note, too. So we find different ways of celebrating it. Whether it's an all-star game or Super Bowl, we're going to find a way to join in celebration. Happy birthday, Jamar. We, we're thankful to God for you and celebrate your, the years that God has given you. Praise God for that. <clears throat> All right. Our scripture this morning is found in Mark chapter 3. I invite you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible or would like to read, as I do from the ESV, we have those Bibles available. Just read, raise your hand. Ushers will bring one right to you. Raise your hand so that you can have a Bible for today's service. And if you don't have your own, you should raise your hand. We want you to hear God's word and to read it for yourself. We have Bibles available just for that purpose. Now, the Bible you're going to get is a small print. <laughs> it's kind of hard to read. That's why I use my glasses. But that's also the reminder to you, you got to get your own, too. You you really want to be comfortable. We want to have a temporary one for you, but we want you to have one that you can take for yourselves. And, and I've, I've been reminded of this, that, you know, well, maybe we should buy Bibles for people. Not a bad idea, but you know what? I see when people want to get that pair of shoes they want. Yeah. They get them. They save up the money to get it. When something really means something to you, um, you set aside and you sacrifice and you get it. And uh, we want you to take God's word that seriously, that it means that much. One of the writers says his word is, is I, I need it more than my necessary food. So, and that is so true. Our spiritual walk is so important. Get a Bible of your own. Use ours where you can and uh, when you have to. But make every effort to get one of your own, even if that calls for sacrifice and uh, some hard work and sacrifice. It's worth it. So I want to invite you to do that. Today's scripture reading from Mark chapter 3. Let's stand then in respect to the reading of God's word. I want you to follow along with me as I read aloud the entire chapter of Mark chapter 3. A 
again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And, when he, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but we'll go with that. That is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God give us understanding and portion of scripture that we read this morning. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our choir will come with special music and then the preaching of God's word today. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, allowing us to come and to find a warm place to meet where we can worship and serve you. We thank you for all who, who made that trip today and made it a point to come out to service. We, we know, Lord, that you are going to bless those who walk in obedience to you. We're thankful for the faithfulness of your people as it's shown in attendance at the service today. And we would pray for those who couldn't make it, some because of health and, and other issues that couldn't be here. We would pray that you would enable them at our next time to be able to come and meet with us. We pray for those who have sicknesses and various ailments, and those who um, through this week will... Um, just have different things for their health. Uh, we think of Dale and a test that he has coming up that you would watch over and be with him. And as he has asked for prayer, that you would allow him to, to fully trust in you and to allow those burdens to be lifted from him and placed on you. And give us, give, us, give him peace in that. We would pray for those who, who are, are sick, who are unable to make our service. We think of, of others, we think of Jonathan, John and, and uh, Keisha and their family and uh, some of the illnesses that they've been facing with their baby, with themselves. We just pray that you would just watch over and bless in that household, bring about healing there. We pray for the funeral tomorrow, Lord. We thank you for the testimony of Sister Lola Spears, and we thank you, Lord, that uh, she had a strong testimony before her family before others who knew her. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with and bless the service tomorrow so that we are able to minister to that family uh, in, in person and, and through your gospel and that your gospel might be strong, it might be clear, and that you might use it to call uh, others to, to yourself out of a life of sin and, and to trust in you for their eternal life, that they might come to trust Christ is their Lord and Savior as a result of being here and hearing the message, the testimony of the gospel. Be with us as we proclaim that, that we might be faithful in all that we do. And Lord, so bless us now in our understanding of your word that it might, um, we might give attention to your word and that you might impact our lives in your truth. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We continue our series now in the Gospel of Mark and find ourselves in chapter 3. We'll look at some of the main ideas in this chapter and then let's go through it through each section verse by verse. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 6, we see a man with a withered hand, how Jesus heals this man. In verses 7 through 12, we see a great crowd that follows Jesus. In verses 13 through 19, we see the 12 apostles that are chosen. Um, verse 22 through 30, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then verses 
20 and 21, and, and also 31 through 35, we see the account of Jesus with his mothers and his brothers, his, his family. So let's look at those ideas that are presented in this chapter. And we ask ourselves what the Holy Spirit is saying through um, the writing here in Mark chapter 3. It's not something that we want to make up ourselves. It's not like you read the, the, the chapter and you go, now what does that mean to you? Because it shouldn't mean something separate to you than what God intended for it to mean. So we want to know what does God intend, what did he have in mind when he wrote his word. We found that one of the keys to this first part of Mark is to, to realize that um, Jesus is, is uh, revealing his authority. So a key word throughout all of this, or the key thought, is his authority. And so let's take a look back at how, that's, how that is being done. So I've kind of highlighted um, several instances. So let's just follow along, starting at the beginning of the book. Jesus reveals his authority, or you can, you can say the Holy Spirit through this writer, through the gospel, is showing Jesus as the one who has authority. And how does he do that in several places? First of all, we see in, John, excuse me, in Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, um, the mark of his baptism, his baptism by John, um, shows Jesus' authority. How does it show that? We see the sign of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at that time like a dove and the voice of the Father from heaven both get, add to the authority that Jesus has. God has, has put his mark of approval on him by his Holy Spirit and he has his own voice coming from heaven saying, this is my son. And so he's telling us to pay attention to that because he's the one in authority. Later on in that chapter, verse 14 and 15, um, Jesus starts off his ministry by giving the gospel. And he commands uh, people to repent and believe. This is a command out of his authority. He preaches the gospel with authority. Verse 16 through 20, we see he, he calls his first disciples, and we see that with authority as he calls the two brothers, uh, two sets of two brothers, and he calls, and they follow him. He calls them out of their life to come and to follow and to walk with him and to obey him. He does that out of his authority, or it shows the authority that he has. Later on in that chapter, verse 21 and, and through 28, he heals a man with an unclean spirit, and he does that on the Sabbath. In that section, we see he teaches with authority. Verse 22, they say, uh, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. By the way, God's word is uh, pronounces its authority over us. It's not just something that we think is nice and, and, and we read because it makes us feel good. It is God's word from him that tells us how we are to live and how we are to think about him. And so that is given with authority. And Jesus rebukes and commands the unclean spirit in the same section. In fact, if you look at verse... 
27. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. It's one thing to command the unclean spirits. I see a lot of people talking, talking to themselves, it seems like, talking in the air, and they're talking assertively. They're commanding. But it says here, he commands and they obey. They actually hear and obey what Jesus has to say. And so we see his authority displayed there. Um, Later on in the chapter, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And uh, so it shows his authority over the physical realm as well as the spiritual realm. In verses 40 through 42, he heals a man with, or even before we get that, verse 32 through 34, he heals many that are sick and demon-possessed. And also verse 39, it shows that. Verse 40 through 42, he heals a man of leprosy. In chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, he heals a paralytic man, and he does this time by forgiving his sins. Jesus shows he has authority not just to heal, but to forgive sin. He has moral authority in all of his creation, to say what is right, to say what is wrong, to forgive and to not forgive sin. In fact, in chapter 3, we'll see what's not forgiven as we see his authority there. Um, In chapter 2, he calls Levi, verse 14, and we see his authority again in calling this man from his life uh, of sin and calling him to himself. He announces his purpose to call sinners in chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to read that. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He announces his authority to call. He announces his authority to call sinners. He's showing his authority that he calls sinners to himself from a life of sin to turn from sin and to be uh, a part with him. Verses 18 through 20, he has authority and gives his disciples authority to not fast. (laughs) They were asking him, how come your disciples don't fast? He says, hey, I have authority to give them that. He says, hey, if the, the, the wedding party is not going to fast when the bridegroom is with them. He's saying, I'm the bridegroom. He's basically saying, I'm it. <laughs> they ought to give attention to me. They ought not to be sad when I'm around. But there's coming a time when I will no longer be with them physically, and then they will fast. All these things are displaying his authority. Um, he defends his disciples who plucked grain in the field and ate on the Sabbath. He defends that by saying he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of everything. He's Lord also on the Sabbath. He says, I didn't stop being Lord just because it's the Sabbath. (laughs) I'm Lord over all things and on all days. And he shows again his authority. Now we get into chapter 3 and we see that continues. And in this chapter, verses 1 through 5, he heals a man with a withered hand. But I want to take note. I want us to take note in how he does that and what what happens as he does that. What what is he bringing on by doing this? What is he trying to get 
um, those around him and those, those of us who read of this account, what does he want us to see through this? I've often remarked that Jesus doesn't just heal to heal. Some people think trusting in Jesus means I have cancer and so I'm going to pray to God and he's going to heal me of my cancer because God is the great healer. He's Jehovah Rapha, the one who heals. And those things are correct, but they fail to see the purpose of God in what he does. As I mentioned, God is not just our genie for us to, 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 to call when we're in trouble to, to deliver us for our own good without there also being some accountability and responsibility and commitment on our part. God heals to show who he is. He wants us, our eyes to be open to who he is. He's the one that gives life. And by the way, he's the one that takes life as well. He wants us to recognize him and all of his authority. And he heals on that basis so that we might see who he is. And sometimes he doesn't heal so that we might know he is sovereign over life to say yes and to say no. We like when he says yes. We don't like when he says no. We say, God, I'll worship you as long as you say yes. But when you say no, I, I don't know. I can't go there with you. Who's God? Who's sovereign? Who rules? God is showing by what he does that he is in charge and we are to submit to him. So Jesus didn't come just to heal to make us feel good or even just to make us feel better. All those who healed are dead now. All those he healed had some other thing that brought about their death. They didn't live forever after Jesus healed them. He healed them for a purpose, and that is to show those around and show us even today who he is, that he is, has authority over all of his creation. He is the creator. He made it, and he does as he pleases, but he wants us to see who he is. And so, look at this account in verses 1 through 6. We've read this all, so I'm just going to highlight some of the things. What's the setting? The setting is in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there's a man with a withered hand there, and there's some others looking around at what's about to happen. That's the setting. Jesus chose this setting. I would imagine you wouldn't always have that in the synagogue. You wouldn't always have somebody necessarily with a withered hand, and you wouldn't have the Pharisees walking around and wondering what's going to happen. But Jesus is there. He's in the, in the synagogue, and it's on the Sabbath, and here's this man with a withered hand. Verse 2 lets us know what's going on behind the scenes. They watched Jesus. Who's the they? <laughs> There's a big group of people. They're the skeptics, but they're also the ones in charge. They're the religious leaders of the day, the political leaders of that day, well, to a degree. Um, and they wanted to maintain the status quo. You know, people in charge want to stay in charge. And they do a lot of stuff so that they might stay in charge. Power is a lot. To, in fact, it's, it's the thing that, that our world rides on. It's the same way. It's, it's just the way human nature is, and that's going on in Jesus' world. And so something happens. It says they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath 
so that they might accuse him. So the gospel writer is, is, is helping us to see the background or helping us see behind the scenes what's going on. I feel like Star Wars now. <laughs> He's helping us to see what's going on behind the scenes so we would see what is happening and what, what he's about to do. Now, he knows this is going on, so he says to the man, come here. And then he speaks to the crowd, the people who are looking. He says, i got a question for y'all. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Simple question, right? Is it lawful? Is it right? Is it okay for me to do this? In your mind, is this all right? Notice their answer. Right. They don't answer. They were silent. Silent. I want you to note here, silence does not always mean consent. It's not, they're not giving Jesus the okay by their silence. In fact, silence is, is, is you know, it's kind of the coward way out. They don't want to answer Jesus' question, so they say nothing. But silence does not mean consent. You need to know that as well. You're here, you're listening attentively, but that doesn't mean in your heart you're accepting what God has to say. Just because you hear God's word and you're silent during that time, don't fool yourself, and I'm certainly not fooled by that because I've been there, and I have to remind myself as I hear the Word of God, am I actively listening and humbling my heart before God? What is your mind saying? It's saying things like, yeah, okay, take it or leave it. I don't buy that. But God is challenging the heart. They were silent. So their silence doesn't show consent. In fact, it often shows contempt. They were contempt. They, 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 they looked at Jesus with contempt. They didn't like what he was doing. They didn't agree with what he was about to do. And they didn't have the, whatever you want to call it, the, to rightly stand up against him. But they were just silent. Notice Jesus' response, his response to their silence. This is how we know what their silence, what their silence meant. It says in verse 5, he looked around them, he looked around at them with anger. So oftentimes we are presented a Jesus that is a Jesus of the world's imagination of love as if he never holds anybody account as if he never challenges any wrong thinking. And he doesn't get angry. But it says Jesus was angry. He looked around them with anger. Jesus didn't go around smiling at everybody and liking everything that they all did and thinking positive things and saying positive words all the time. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. Why was he angry? It says he was, he was grieved. Grieved. I like the fact that it shows that he was angered and grieved. 
and he wasn't just one or the other. He was deeply disturbed in his inner being, and it brought up anger and a sadness at the same time. That they could be so, it says, to use the term, hard-hearted. They cared little about the state of this man, either physically or spiritually. All they cared about, how could they turn this situation to, so that they could use it for their advantage to maintain their power and to shut Jesus up. And if they had to destroy Jesus to do that, that's exactly what they were going to do. Jesus was grieved and angered at that. I think there's some things today we ought to be grieved and angered about if we're going to have the mind of Jesus. We need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to know when and how to grieve and what we should be angry about and how we ought to express that anger. But following Christ means a full uh, uh, gamut of emotion that is given by the Holy Spirit and applied in right ways. And that is a continual challenge to be led by the Holy Spirit to do that. But Jesus gives us a model and example. He was angry at these wicked individuals for their self-centered hard-heartedness that rejected him and put their agenda first. And Jesus does something. They're wondering if he's going to heal this man, right? What does he do? He had already called the man to come forward. Come here, he says to him in verse 3. And then he addresses the crowd. After he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. The only thing he says to this man is stretch out your hand. <laughs> he didn't say, you know, whatever magic words you want to use, be you healed. He just said, stretch out your hand. The man stretched out his hand, and the Bible tells us here what happened. He stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored. <laughs> It just happened, right? We know nothing just happens. Jesus healed this man, but the way he healed him was by saying, look, uh, stretch out your hand. Look at the response, and you see how Jesus works things in such a way. <laughs> it says, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I see a theme in this chapter as well. We see strange unities. The Pharisees and the Herodians. <laughs> Jesus says, stretch out, his, out your hand because they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't come into court and say, hey, you know what? <laughs> he healed him on the Sabbath. Well, obviously he healed but they couldn't see anything that he actually, what's your physical evidence is the man had a withered hand and now it's not. 
They wanted to say, Jesus, you did work on the Sabbath. Jesus said, I just spoke. <laughs> Is it illegal for me to speak? He already asked a question, though, that dealt with the larger question. Is it wrong for me to heal him? They couldn't say clearly that it was because he's challenging that old perverted way they had of looking at Scripture so that they might be in charge. And it was, in fact, perverted, and Jesus played it out every time he could. And we see that by the fact that he comes in the synagogue. Now, he could have done this the day before. He could have been in the marketplace and seen the man with the withered hand and healed him there. He decided to do it in a synagogue on a Sabbath in front of the Jews so that he might challenge their wrong way of thinking. Jesus is showing his authority. And we see here his authority is going to buck up against. It's going to be, it's going to contrast, it's going to conflict with man and man's rule and man's say. Jesus' authority in your life is going to conflict with man and his sense of false authority over your life. Man wants to tell you. When I say man, I'm talking about this, this world system that is orchestrated by Satan wants to take charge in your life and set the rules for you, but God has a command and he has a rule in your life. And when you follow his rule, you're going to be in conflict with the world. That conflict is going to come to a head. We see where it's going. There's a hint here, as we see in the end of verse 6. They held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So we, we see this tension building. And as Jesus goes about to do what, he's, what the Father has given him to do, as he begins to preach and to teach and to heal and to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand, as he begins to do that, it's not just a, a, a happy life. It's not just healing people and smiling and going home. It's not just, you know, kissing babies and shaking hands and making friends. He's making some enemies as he goes along because he stands on the truth and he stands against that which has, has, has uh, 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 perverted the truth. The Pharisees in their system, anything that is not of God is going to stand in conflict with the gospel. And God's going to challenge it. He, he was, he's going to have us challenge it in our lives. So let's continue on. In the next couple verses, we see two things that I think are in contrast. We see the great crowd that follows Jesus, verse 7 through 12. And then we see Jesus appointing his 12 apostles. And I think we see two separate groups here. Let's look at them. It says in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. It gives all the areas that they're from. And if you look on the map, it's a wide area there. So people are coming from all around. Remember I said there's a difference between fascination and faith. People were fascinated with what Jesus was doing. But only few are actually following him out of faith. In the first crowd, we see the fascination. It says a great crowd follows Jesus. Look at the middle of verse uh, 8. It says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. 
It was so many, look at verse 9. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases uh, pressed around him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The reason why he wanted them not to make him known is because there were so many people who were, who were going to follow him simply out of fascination. Look at the great things he's done. Isn't that amazing? They're coming for the show. Jesus isn't doing it for the show. He's doing it to show who he is and for, to, for, for them to come and trust in him to turn from their sins and to commit to him. You know, today people are fascinated with the things of God oftentimes and oftentimes for the wrong reasons. Some people come to church for superstition. I came to church this week. My week is going to go good. Really? That's what you came to church for? I'm reading the word today because it's my good luck charm. My mother is sick, so I better be sure to read the word and pray today. God may look down on my life and have mercy. Now, you may do good things for wrong reasons. These people were following Jesus out of fascination. Huge crowds were gathering. You wonder where those crowds were later on in the gospel when Jesus was on the cross. You wonder where the crowds was when Jesus had an unfair trial just ridiculed the, the justice system there. When would they speak out then? It wasn't popular to do that. But it's fascinating to follow him now. And they follow him with that great fascination. Some people, you know, um, they have an interest in the things that Jesus can do and how they can benefit from them without regard to the purpose that Jesus has in doing what he does. In other words, it's a self-centered interest. Now, I understand we all have an interest for ourselves, and you ought to trust Christ out of self-interest. I, I, I understand that. <laughs> the Bible says, repent, turn from your sin, lest you die and face God's judgment and go to hell. So simply because we don't want to go to hell, we ought to listen and follow the word of God and, and, and obey it. But we find that it's not just our self-interest that guides. Our self-interest doesn't define what's right and what's wrong. God defines that. And we learn that God is holy, that God is righteous, and he is the one in authority. And we are, he has a full right to order us to obey and to command us to, to love him and to follow him. Self-interest include a freedom from suffering and healing. That's natural, right? A freedom from fear and oppression, demon possession. We also want a healing without commitment. That's where you see the self-interest. It's like, okay, I'm coming to God. You do this for me, but um, I have no interest in committing myself to you. And God says, that's not really how it works. Because I made you. 
I created you and I provide for you that you might be rightly related to me. And when you're right related to me, you realize I am God and you are my creation. You serve me. And when you serve me, you find out there's no better thing to do. That's what you were created for. There's no better thing to do. There's no place, better place to be than to be the servant of God doing the will of God. But it's not an easy path and it's not an easy life. It is fulfilling and satisfying because we see what's at the end of it. But the path is often difficult. Jesus faced that same thing. They were there for a show of the spectacular, a display of power over the demonic world. Who would not want to see that? A display of authority over the current leadership. You know, love to see Jesus setting the scribes and the Pharisees in their place. But it comes down to more than just that. And we see what that is when we look at the next section. Look at verses 13 and on for me. It says, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, these aren't coming merely out of, out of a fascination. They're coming because God has called them and done a work in their heart to draw him to himself. Jesus calls these 12, and they come and they follow him. I notice something in these 12 that come. We're listed, we're given the names for them. You see the first group, verse 16, he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, or however you want to pronounce that. That is sons of thunder. These come to Jesus and to, to, to these, this group of leaders, and these first ones are the, the, the leaders of the leaders. And Jesus renames them and reappoints them or repurposes them. Remember what he said to Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He comes and he takes them from being fishermen to doing his will and his purpose. He gives them a new name and, and gives them a renewed purpose. That's what Jesus does with those he calls. That name, um, well, it, it depicts Jesus' ownership of them. It also depicts that, that he knows them and he has a purpose for them. He says, I'm calling you sons of thunder. <laughs> I'm calling you Peter or rock. Jesus, in, in essence, giving them nicknames to show the purpose that he has for them. They're intimately acquainted with Jesus now. It's different than the huge crowd that's following Jesus out of fascination. Jesus is calling them this group, and he's... he's calling them and they're responding out of faith. Verse 14, he says, he appointed the 12 
so that they might be with him. He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. These are called the apostles. They were witnesses or eyewitnesses to Jesus, to his life. And they had been given power by Jesus to, to continue the work and the ministry that Jesus was starting. So we see a contrast between these two groups. The next section I want to look at is this section from 22 through 30. And we see this section of this blaspheming of the, against the Holy Spirit. It says, Scribes come down from Jerusalem, and they make an accusation towards Jesus. And this is it. It says, He's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's cast out demons. It's a serious thing to make this charge against Jesus, and this section shows that. And they're simply saying that Jesus performs miracles by the power of Satan. Is that possible that a person can do miracles by the power of Satan? I think, yeah, I think that's, that's possible. A person can do some supernatural things by Satan's power. I think they're called false signs because it's not the power of God that's accomplishing that. But the thing is, God doesn't want us to, to be in awe of that, of Satan's work. He wants us to be in awe of who God is and the real power that exists. But they were declaring that Jesus was operating not under God's power, but under Satan's power. And Jesus makes several points here. And he says this, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. He goes on to, to make this point and even says it in a parable. And in essence, he's saying a couple things. One is Satan's kingdom is strong. Therefore, it doesn't seem to be divided against itself. And I, say, I said again earlier that there's some strange unities that's happening in this chapter. When we see strange unities, we, we know that there's something working on the outside that creates this. And so Jesus is saying that Satan's kingdom is not torn apart easily because it's a strong person in charge of it. And it's a strong structure or a strong organization. It's not easily attacked or easily uh, 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 fought against. He's given us some, just some realism about the spiritual world that we're dealing in, lest we forget. We do not have the strength to go against and to battle Satan in our own strength. So Jesus says, look, look, you can't conquer a strong man's kingdom unless you overpower the strong man. That's just a natural truth. But Jesus is saying this. He came to overpower the strong man. He is the one that is capable of defeating, defeating Satan's kingdom. And that's exactly what he came to do. 
but he's also addressing this huge accusation that he's doing it by the work of Satan. He's, he's in essence saying that Satan ain't that stupid to do a work against himself. Satan has a strong unity in what he's doing. It's so strong today that we hardly recognize, and you won't recognize it unless you have your spiritual eyes open, the work that's all around us that's done by Satan. When God begins to open your eyes, you begin to see it. And if you're like me, you start wondering, am I crazy? Why am I the only one that's seeing this stuff that's going on? It's not just stuff in what we would call the outside world. It's stuff that Satan would sell in the church. It's stuff that, that Christians should know and should see, but they fail to do or fail to recognize. Christ is saying Satan isn't divided. His kingdom is going strong. And it's not going to be stopped by anything or anybody except God. Jesus is the one that attacks and, and has a full-out assault on the strong man is able to bind him and tear down his kingdom. It's not being torn down now. It's being built up ever so strong. And we need to recognize that. It's going to climax and continue to build until Christ comes and mightily, with his mighty hand, tears it down. Give you an illustration of what that looks like. God gave us this illustration and we might see it. Egypt took the nation of Israel into slavery. And he bound them in this slavery and he wouldn't relent. He made promises, I'm going to be easy on you, I'll let you go. And he never relented. And God says, Moses, I'm sending you there so that you might bring my people out of this slavery. Now Moses is, is just actually a picture of God's hand and the work that God wants to do. He's going to do it through a human being. And he is in fact a picture of Jesus himself because God is going to bring his people out of the spiritual slavery that Satan has on them but by his own hand, by God's own hand, he's going to do that. We see how Moses tried to accomplish in, in his own strength. He went there and, and he saw the stuff going on and he tried to do some things and, and he totally failed and backfired on him. He got kicked out. He had to run away from there and uh, he was spent 40 years, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know, wiping his wounds, I guess, or trying to figure out how I'm going to accomplish this until he finally submitted to God. God is saying, Moses, it's, it's not by a strong hand, it's by my mighty hand that I'm going to bring this about. The point there is that the Pharaoh, who's a picture of Satan himself, is not going to relent, he's not going to turn away simply because you come and say, do this or do that. Satan is that way. He doesn't give up his kingdom easily because you beg him or plead with him or make deals with him. That's not going to work. 
God has to tear it down. That's exactly what God did for the Israelites against the Egyptians. He came in with a mighty hand, delivered his people, and destroyed the enemy. Now, some people think that I am making some racial statement when I bring that out. No, it is a spiritual warfare greater than any racial battle that we could ever see or face. The enemy is Satan. Sin is what has us bound up in this. And Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy Satan and have the remedy for sin. And the consequence of sin is death. And I'm going to conquer all of those by what I do. And so for the Pharisees or anybody to accuse Jesus as using the power of Satan is the ultimate, not just insult, but it is blasphemy to call God's work the work of Satan. But that's what Satan always does. He, he, he turns things and twists things. And it's amazing that, to me, that Satan is not divided. It's amazing the unities and how strong He's embedded in all of culture and all society. The reason why he's not divided, I use this term, Satan accomplishes, he multiplies by division, is what I call it. He grows by division. So when Satan calls division somewhere else, it just adds to his kingdom because his ultimate goal is chaos and destruction. <laughs> and so anything that he uses to bring division doesn't split his kingdom, it just adds to it. You get people fighting. If you get mother and father in the home, husband and wife in the home, divided against each other and working against each other, he tears down the whole family. He's accomplished exactly what he wants. And he uses whatever things in society to bring that out. <laughs> he'll, he'll use drugs. He'll use alcohol. He'll use sex. He'll, he, he'll promote that through TV. He'll promote that through Internet. He'll use whatever he can. And everything he... he, he look... When you want to bring about chaos, it's, it's a million ways to tear down a building, but only one way to build it back up. And so he is at work, he is strong, and he is in essence invincible by human effort. There is no way that we can bind the strong man. And there is no way that we can join in the unity that's going to allow us to accomplish that in ourselves. That's why Genesis 10, God says, look at these fools who want to come together in a unity and think they can accomplish something. They don't know who their enemy is. They don't know the power that he holds. They haven't come to me for help. They're saying they don't need me. Jesus says, I've come to bind that strong man. And the only way that can happen is through the power of God. So in essence, he says, look, if you reject and call the work of God Satan's work, you are condemned. You stand condemned. For those who stand condemned, there is no remedy in and of themselves. God is the only 
salvation and they have turned from God and announced they don't need a savior therefore they won't have one they don't have one God is the only solution God is the only answer now I've gone over today and I haven't finished everything so I'm just going to wrap things up here and say Jesus is showing his authority and he and he alone will attack and bring victory over Satan's mighty kingdom. He does that through the cross. He does that through the resurrection. He does that through his soon return. He does that in all of his being and all of history. He's accomplishing that for his people. He will stand king of kings and lord of lords. He will rule and Satan will be placed in his place and it will be done by God's power only. What we do is cry out and say, God, we need you. God, I submit to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what you're accomplishing through him. Let my life line up with Jesus. I see who's going to win this battle. And Lord, I'm, I want to be with you. Welcome me to your side. I repent. I turn from my sin, my rebellion of you, and I submit myself to you through your Savior, your Son, Jesus. Father, I pray it might be our prayer today. And those who have prayed that will be live a life consistent with that, recognizing each and every day we don't have the strength in our own selves to fight the battle against Satan and against sin, but we must rely on your provision, and that's through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one. He is the only way. May we submit to him. May we serve him. May we find victory in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Give ourselves a few t uh, just a moment to fellowship and to greet each other, and then very shortly after that, I'm going to ask to meet with those who will be helpful with the funeral tomorrow. So I'm sorry. We'll, we'll have to do communion next week. Um, those who will be helpful with the funeral tomorrow, if you will meet with me um, in the front here after about five minutes.